Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It's been a few weeks since I've been here sitting in the hosting seat, and I am very excited to be back. Uh, I would love to be with you every week, but I also have some fabulous co-hosts, and they enjoy this too, so it wouldn't be fair if I didn't share with them. Um, uh, Most of our show today is going to be answering your questions, and as you know, we always ask you, please send in your questions if you have them. Um, You can send them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Uh, sometimes we answer the question directly. Sometimes we actually create entire segments around your questions, uh, and that's actually the case today. Um, so we're going to be talking about dual enrollment. It's something we do get a lot of questions about, and we thought it would be great for a segment, and I'm very excited to welcome my colleague, who happens to be a former AO or admissions officer, to not use uh, the lingo of admissions, at MIT, Caltech, and the Boston Conservatory, so, he, you know, he's a math and music kind of guy. Uh, Zaragoza Guerra. Hi, Zaragoza. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. And thank you so much for joining us today to talk about something that we get lots of questions about, and that is dual enrollment. Um, and maybe in terms of kicking things off, tell us a little bit, you know, what is dual enrollment for families who aren't, who've never heard of that or are unclear? Yeah, dual enrollment is, an opportunity for a student within the high school setting to take classes that would get them credit not only for their high school, their graduation requirements, but might also get them credit at a college or university. So oftentimes, a, it's usually going to be a, a regional relationship in the sense that you might have a, a, a local high school partnering with a local university or a local community college. And sometimes uh, the teacher who would be teaching uh, the student uh, would be um, certified to, to teach at that community college, or they would get some kind of certification to say, hey, the class that we're teaching um, would be things that we would be teaching within this particular college or university. So if we see that we've, you've taken that class on your uh, transcript, we're going to give you credit for that um, at, on the college level. So students can uh, then use that class to move on to other material once they arrive at that particular college, or they could also get, get credit as well. So these are opportunities for students perhaps to uh, get enough credit to graduate from college a little bit earlier um, than they normally would. Um, it's an opportunity for them to head on into more advanced material once they get at that college or university. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a win for students in a number of ways in, in that uh, not only are they getting credit and placement, they might also be able to save some money uh, too uh, in the sense that they wouldn't have to, if they're saving uh, uh, a year's worth of credit or placement, hey, that's one year's worth of college tuition they wouldn't be paying. Sure, sure. And 
Um, I think in some cases, too, if students do enough dual enrollment, they may even go into college already having earned an associate's degree and only needing in some cases, and again, this is going to vary greatly from system to system, but you might only need two more years in order to get your bachelor's degree. So um, that is sort of an interesting option. First, first question, at, now that we've established what it is, is it a common option? Is this something you're going to see in a lot of places? You know, when I first started doing admissions, it wasn't as common as it is now. Um, I would say it would come up in an application, and, and oftentimes, even in committee, we'd be asking, hey, you know, what is this program? Have you heard of this particular program? But that was, you know, well over 20 years ago. And I would say as time went on, we became a lot more familiar with them. And, and I would say most admission officers will be familiar with them. And this is, these are programs that you're going to see all across the country. I would I would say, though, that it's probably going to be more prevalent, and, and I would see it more in the states that have uh, where you where you see a big uh, public school uh, statewide system. You know, uh, mm-hmm. where a, a lot of students from um, that particular state are aspiring to go to. So, you know, I I would see it all, oftentimes in the Pacific Northwest. I'd see it in California. I'd see it in Texas. I'd see it in Florida. Um, places where you know, a lot of students are, are aiming for those uh, big public institutions um, or where students are aiming for the, the regional school, okay? That's so it's not, it's not something that um, I see too often in the sense that a student is doing this to um, then take that dual enrollment process and take that dual enrollment credit to then uh, jump state. Uh, and go to a school out of state, okay? Got it. So it's mostly yep. going to be a, a more local kind of program, um, particular to a region. Got it. And that makes sense. But also is a perfect segue to my next question for you, which is students generally, if you're choosing uh, dual enrollment, it means everything has a choice, right? So if you choose dual enrollment, mm-hmm. that may mean that you are not choosing um, some more traditional advanced programs like uh, AP or IB. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on how dual enrollment stacks up against AP and IB mm-hmm. um, p- programs. Yeah, I think it's, it's all a matter of choice, as you, as you mentioned. Um, if a student knows that at the end of the day, at the end of their high school experience, they're aiming for the university that's more local to them. If they're aiming for something that's a little bit more regionally based, I think uh, dual enrollment can be a, a, a wonderful option for those students to get that credit, to get that placement. There's no guarantee that those advantages are going to carry over to a college or university that's further away. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, if you know, when I was in an admissions office and uh, we came across a student who had been uh, in a dual enrollment program, we knew that they were taking challenging classes, but we wouldn't necessarily be guaranteeing them credit or placement for any of those classes or any of those choices. If you're looking at it from, hey, where can I get credit or placement? Um, I think an AP or an IB program might better suit you if you are looking to uh, jump to f- further off for your mm-hmm. college education. Um, right. Because 
there are going to be schools across the country who would recognize the AP and the IB uh, curriculum in the sense that they will explicitly publish on their websites and explicitly let the public know, hey, if you take this class and you then take a test at the end of the day and you score X, Y, or Z, we're going to guarantee you credit or placement. Okay? Not, not every school does that, but most schools do, and you're going to know explicitly which of those schools would. Right. Um, so contrast that with a dual enrollment program where, hey, that's not going to be the case. Okay? It's yep. mostly going to be the case with your regional um, institutions and those schools that have a, uh, a relationship with your high school. Yep. And, and I think if you if we divest it from what I think the original purpose for uh, certainly AP and dual enrollment way back in the day when they were kind of created, it was this idea that, oh, you can earn credits to graduate. And now what I has really started to evolve or really has evolved is that at many colleges, the AP doing well in the AP test is really just a way to show your mastery of a subject, but it doesn't always give you credit. Um, in fact, the more selective you get, the more difficult it is to get credit for AP courses um, in the sense that actual college credit. They're going to love seeing those on the transcript. They're going to appreciate the pursuit of rigor, um, but they are not necessarily going to give you actual college credit. Um, I know that even in my sh- my time at Penn, there was a shift from awarding credit for a number of different tests with a score of a four or five to awarding credit for only a a very few. And the score had to be a five. Um, And, you know, nowadays, because a lot of the families that we are um, talking to, it's less about getting credit and more about getting rigor, the, um, you know, I, I, I can't even say that I know right now exactly which which uh, courses I'd have to look it up is my is my guess. However, to your point, if I did look it up on the website, it would be there. I would be able to find it and know precisely what I needed to earn on the AP test in order to get credit in that particular subject area, or even if taking that class was going to give me credit. Um, but if we if we get away from talking about getting earning actual credit, what's your take on how colleges view? the rigor of dual enrollment versus AP and IB. And actually, IB, just for our listeners who are unfamiliar, stands for International Baccalaureate Program, which is becoming uh, another program that we're seeing in U.S. high schools um, and is, is usually it offered instead of AP, although sometimes alongside it. But that's a whole conversation for another day. But what's yeah. your take about how colleges are viewing the rigor? <laughs> I, w- I would say this. It, you know, it's if your school has all of those as options, okay, and there, there, there are going to be some schools where, hey, they're going to give you the option of doing dual credit, they're going to give you the option of doing the AP, and they're going to give you the option of doing the IB. I think um, what you should think about is which program is going to fit my needs for the most. Um, you know, is it going to be easier for me to take those more advanced classes and fit them in my schedule if I'm taking the AP curriculum? Do I like that and the option of picking and choosing classes? Or do I like the structure of the IB curriculum? Is that, does that fit my, my needs more? Um, so for, for those students who, who got uh, the option, I would probably say, hey, if you're going more locally, dual credit can be a, a, a great option. If you're trying to 
um, go a little bit further off. If maybe you're looking at some selected colleges and universities further away, I might opt perhaps for either the AP or the IB, um, mostly because they're, they're going to, you know, here, here's the thing. They're, when they're, even when they're publishing, hey, we, we trust the AP and we trust the IB curriculum and we're going to give you credit for that, they're signaling to you that this is something they know about. And uh, this is something they're not going to have any questions about. Um, right. I think, you know, for, for most students, uh, simply look at, at what the high school is saying uh, is the most challenging course load uh, within the high school. If they're telling you, hey, we think that um, our top students go into the AP curriculum, then you might want to opt for that. Okay, for the challenge. Um, if you're opting for that challenge and, and the most challenging thing that the high school offers happens to be the dual uh, enrollment, then opt for that. I don't think there's necessarily always going to be a right or wrong answer here. Um, and uh, it's going to depend upon what the high school offers. Um, and it's going to depend upon what your needs are. As I said, right. if, you're, if you're opting for something a little bit more regionally, I might go for the, the dual credit. Okay, because mm-hmm. those schools do know about that. But if you're opting for something further away, I would probably say go with the AP or the IB because you're, you're getting signals from colleges um, across the country who know about it. Whereas your dual enrollment program, it's mostly going to be the, the regional universities that will have a comfort level with it, that will, um, in the sense that they know about it and that they're automatically going to be giving you credit replacement for it. Yep, yep. I would agree. Zaragoza, thank you so much. I'm hopeful that this answers um, what have been a few one-off questions that we get from time to time um, for our listeners and uh, appreciate your time today. You're welcome, Beth. My pleasure. All right. Uh, Well, stay tuned. We are going to be answering your questions when we come back. Um, So I think you're going to want to be here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. 
Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are uh, answering your questions. We love it when you send us questions. In fact, if you are thinking, well, how do I do that? Um, send it to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. A couple of quick things here. The first is that we would love to have, if you are listening and you have questions, um, we'd love to have you actually come on the show and ask your questions and we'll answer them in real time uh, rather than kind of seeing everything that comes in and choosing the ones. So um, let us know. Go to Facebook, like us and follow us on Facebook and you can post your question there, or you can um, send it to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And then a couple of other quick things. We know because we hear from you that there are a number of guidance counselors who listen to the podcast, which is maybe the most exciting thing to me um, of everything. When Since we've launched the show four years ago, one of our primary goals is to Um, as a company is really to help as many people as we possibly can. And there's no one more important to students and their move to higher education than guidance counselors. And the role that you guys play is so important. And we would love to support you in any way we can. Um, This podcast is great. Uh, I know that there is... um, a lot of there are a lot of professional development days available at schools. Uh, if you think that something that your district might be interested in, um, we would be interested in supporting you, talking to you, um, and being a resource for you. Um, so we can put together some programs around that if that's something that you think there might be a professional development budget for. So let us know. Again, you could reach out to us at gettingin.voiceamerica@gmail.com. All right, Shannon. Welcome. Yeah. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm great, Beth. I have a little bit of a cold, so my voice may not be at its radio best, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best today. I think you sound great. And for our listeners, Shannon is a frequent guest when we do the Q&A uh, segment and other segments related to college finance. Um, she's a former financial aid officer at both Tufts and Boston University. Um, Shannon, really quickly, um, we did get a question from a listener who is asking, uh, what can I be doing now as I wait for decisions to come back? Is there anything I can do that will help even a little? And I just wanted to direct you to a show that we did on January 10th. So I know our archives are big and extensive, but if you go to the show from January 10th, 2019, we did a segment on exactly that topic. So check it out. Uh, All right, Shannon, we have a few questions from Todd in North Carolina. So 
let me set the stage and then I'll kind of ask you one, you can answer it and we'll, we'll get through um, all three of the questions that he's asking here. So um, Todd says, I'm a homeschooling parent and our oldest kid is a senior. We've completed the FAFSA and sent it to the appropriate colleges. I have some questions about the CSS that I didn't hear answered on the October 11th, 2018 podcast segment. And for our listeners, if you're interested, we did a show on filling out the CSS profile on October 11th, 2018. So you can check that out. All right. First question from Todd. Will we be notified by colleges when, if I need to fill out the CSS? My research shows that most of my school's target schools require it. No. So the colleges are not going to, you know, proactively reach out to you to tell you to fill out the CSS profile. It's really up to you as, as the student or the parent to check each school's website, um, see what they require to apply for financial aid, and then submit all of the financial aid applications that they may require. And that's going to consist of at least the FAFSA and a number of schools require the CSS profile form. So it sounds like, Todd, that you've already done that research and you know that a bunch of schools on your, um, on your son's list uh, require the CSS, so you just do it. Don't wait for them to tell you. You just need to do it and send it in by their financial aid application deadline. Okay. Second question from Todd. I was approved by FSA to import IRS data into the FAFSA. Does the CSS use that as well for some of its questions? Is it a separate approval or does it use the same tool and approval that FAFSA uses? No. So the uh, Todd references FSA just stands for Federal Student Aid Programs. Uh, And the tool he's talking about is a tool that's available on the FAFSA called the IRS Data Retrieval Tool. It's a tool that was implemented a few years ago that makes it a whole lot easier for um, folks to fill out the FAFSA because you don't no longer have to manually import all of your um, or manually enter your income information. You just basically kind of click a button and it imports all your income data from the IRS. That is a tool that is available on the FAFSA and only on the FAFSA because, you know, you're basically dealing with the, the IRS and the Department of Education, two government agencies, you know, with your permission, they can transmit your info to each other. Um, IRS is not going to transmit your info to a private entity um, like the college board who runs the CSS profile. So for the CSS profile, you do have to manually enter all of your income information. It's not quite as easy as on the FAFSA. All right. Excellent. And question three from Todd. Our FAFSA EFC, expected family and contribution, sorry, expected family <laughs> contribution. I was about to get all, look at me. I know all my um, financial right. issues. <laughs> and then I almost screwed sense. it up. Okay. <laughs> Our FAFSA EFC indicates we will not come close to qualifying for need-based aid at any college. The additional CSS questions will not change that. Will colleges still require the CSS, even ones that don't offer any merit aid? A few such schools are on his list. So you, and I I think I get this misperception a lot that you're required to fill out the FAFSA and or the CSS. The FAFSA and the CSS are both financial aid applications, and you are never required to apply for financial aid. So the FAFSA form is used to determine government financial aid eligibility. Many schools also use the FAFSA to determine their own institutional aid eligibility. Or the alternative, some schools have decided that the CSS profile form gives a better picture than the FAFSA of a family's ability to pay for college. So they say, we're going to use the FAFSA to determine your government aid eligibility and the CSS profile to determine your institutional aid eligibility, the money from 
us as a college. Um, so you don't have to fill out either form, but if you want to apply for aid, you have to fill out whatever the school tells you to fill out uh, on their website. Now, if you know that your income is such that, you know, there's no possibility of qualifying for need-based aid, then you don't have to take the time to fill out the CSS. You don't have to fill out the FAFSA either uh, unless you may want to do so to access some of the government student loan programs that anybody can get, no matter what your income. Um, but you don't have to apply for financial aid. You don't have to fill out either form. Um, but before you kind of make that decision, you definitely want to be 100% sure that you won't qualify for aid, meaning you have filled out a net price calculator on the website of each of the colleges that your child is applying to. Every college has these net price calculators. Uh, you plug in your basic financial info and it will estimate your aid eligibility. Um, so you want to do that first. Make absolutely sure you're not going to qualify for aid. And if you've determined that at every college that your child's applying to, then you don't have to bother with the FAFSA and the CSS uh, unless you want to. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Shannon. And I have a question for you from April. And April says, my daughter has near-perfect scores. Uh, She spells them out a 35 out of 36 on the ACT, um, 800 on the History SAT2, 780 on Math, uh, near-perfect GPA, captain of a varsity team, very strong extracurriculars, did high-level science lab work during the summer, etc. In other words, she did everything quote-unquote right. Despite putting a lot of time into her applications, she was deferred from her ED and EA schools, early decision and early action. I think I got those right. Woo, I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> she is feeling discouraged. Uh, the question is, will taking a gap year to do something interesting improve her chances of getting into one of her top choices next year? Will universities still consider her strong high school record if she reapplies in a year? Or is this just the new reality for students who do not fall into one of the desirable categories? She specifies legacy, donors, URM, I don't know what that is, um, Gen international, yep. uh, geographically unusual, etc. For what it's worth, she was accepted into one of the state schools, but we don't live in a state with a well-resourced, strong flagship campus. All right. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, Well, for starters, April, I'm sure that this was discouraging um, for your daughter to be a very, very good student um, with, with, as you say, you know, did everything right. You put it in quotes. I'm putting it in quotes as well. Um, The reason being that there is kind of no right way. Um, There is no, unfortunately, formula. Um, What I don't know here um, is a, a which makes it, you know, sort of challenging, right, is I don't know where she applied ED. I don't know where she applied EA. I can assume based on what you shared of her achievements that she probably um, shot for a few very selective schools. Um, It may be, though, and I've seen this happen this year, where maybe her early action school was slightly less selective, um, and maybe they deferred her as well, which might be a little baffling, although you didn't mention that, so uh, it's tough to say. Um, and I can appreciate that she is feeling discouraged. I think the first thing here is that, um, 
the numbers are truly extraordinary in terms of how many students are applying at the highly selective level. And I don't know that your daughter was applying at the highly selective level, although I'm going to assume that she was because with those stats and that involvement, um, I would guess that if she'd applied at a slightly less selective level, she probably would have been admitted in early decision. Um, She is certainly not a student who I would consider a dime a dozen, although there are many, many students who fit her profile in the applicant pools at the most selective level. Um, that's not really what you're asking, but what I, what I, what you're asking about is a gap year. And I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I I think, um, you know, what we're seeing is just extraordinary competition all around. And while what you describe is absolutely a great student, um, at the most selective level, we have talked quite a bit on the show about a developing a distinguishing excellence and, um, you know, kind of being more narrowly uh, or more well lopsided, sorry, more well lopsided than well-rounded, I guess. And that is mm-hmm. something that really does help students to stand out a little bit. Um, and it's unfortunately not really a new reality. It has kind of been the reality for a while. And it is also the reality for Students who have legacy status, who um, are underrepresented minorities, who are first gen, who are international, who are geographically unusual, all the things that you sort of lay out as um, desirable categories. Um, You know, donors, uh, even that, you know, the amount of money that really a, a family has to have been donating over the years is an extraordinary sum. And so that actually applies to very, very few people. Um, so I get it. I get it. But it is hard all around is hard all over is kind of what I'm trying to share here. As far as taking a gap year, first of all, there's a lot of decision making to come. Right. So there are decisions. She'll have more decisions, certainly on the deferrals by um, April 1st. Um, if she hasn't followed up with the schools where she's been deferred, um, we did talk about that in some shows in December. So I would take a listen to those if you're looking for tips on how to follow up on that. Um, we've also done shows on gap years. What I will say is this, that um, the, the gap year it doesn't change what you did in high school, right? It's only one year. And when you take the gap year, you're, tri- you're typically going to be applying in the fall, just like you applied in the fall this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means is you will really only have a couple of months um, before you're going to be reapplying. The, the closer you are to high school, the more important your high school record is going to be. So her very strong record is great and will absolutely still count, quote unquote. I'm putting that in air quotes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it really does depend on what it is that she's doing with that gap year time. Joining, a, um, you know, an established program that's going to cost you a lot of money um, is likely to be viewed for what it is, which is just kind of like a holding pattern until you're ready to reapply. Um, I would encourage her if she has some areas of specific interest, you know, you mentioned that she did science research during the summer. Um, If there's an opportunity to get much more deeply involved in lab research uh, over the course of a gap year, that might be something that would allow her to more fully develop a distinguishing excellence. Um, And that in turn might make her more appealing. Um, 
I think there's also, there are some challenges in students. They can put a lot of time into their applications. I, I have to say they don't always, it's not always time well spent. Um, so as an example, I would share a student who I worked with this year who um, ultimately did not get into many of the highly selective schools that she had applied to. And there were some things that she could have done differently, um, including um, many of the essays that she had written really weren't doing what she needed them to do in her application. And she hadn't always written about the things that would be the most impactful. So there is that, uh, you know, that added challenge too. But um, I would say that probably, um, first of all, I have my fingers crossed that things, she gets some results that she's more excited about in um, in the spring, in a couple of months. Um, I would also say that... Um, yeah, I think that's that's about as much as I probably can say <laughs> about one of these things. But, you know, again, I think that the last thing I will say is that for better or worse, this is not a unique story. I know it feels it's your story. It's very painful. It's very hard to watch your child who's worked so hard go through this. I really do get it. We see it every year. Um, I, I wish it was more unique, um, which might make it seem like more of a mistake. But uh, it's just a, serious, a case where there is more demand than supply at some of these institutions um, and really points out the absolute must of having a balanced list and showing all of your school's love by um, visiting them and and really knowing for sure that every school on your list is a school that you'd be willing to attend. All right. That was long. Um, Yeah. I, uh, we have, why don't we go to break and when we come back, we'll come back to some, um, more finance questions because I think the next one we have for you is, um, not a quick answer. So, uh, don't go away. We're going to be back and we'll get right back to your questions then. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are going to jump right back into your questions. Uh, And this is a finance question for you, Shannon, and it comes from Ellen. Uh, Ellen says, thanks for answering my recent questions related to older parents. I was thrilled to gain some clarity and even more thrilled to hear you're planning an in-depth episode on such issues. And as a side note, Ellen, we are, and for other parents who are older and wondering about these same things, that episode is going to air on March 28th. So stay tuned. We're going to be talking about that on the March 28th episode of Getting In. All right. So Ellen says, I asked about whether Social Security payments are included on the FAFSA, and the basic answer was yes. However, I'm still not sure which number goes on the FAFSA, the entire amount received or the taxable amount included in AGI. Both are shown on the tax return. My daughter aims to get her apps in early next year, and I plan to do the same with the FAFSA, but I fear that mistakes on items such as this will lead to verification and delay the college decision process for my daughter. Similarly, would appreciate specific answer for IRA distributions, whereby you show the entire amount written, entire amount received, as well as the taxable amount on Form 1040. I've written to FAFSA, but their answers were not clear. Uh, and finally, I probably should have split this one up for you too, but, and finally, in 2018, we received social security benefits for a minor, which will end when she graduates high school. This is not on our tax return, but do we need to include for FAFSA and then also for the CSS profile? All right. How about it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there is a lot going on there, but as for the social security benefits, the FAFSA asks you for your adjusted gross income. So any tax social security benefits are going to just be included in that AGI. You don't have to report the taxable social security benefits separately. It's just automatically included when you report that full AGI. Uh, And you do not have to report untaxed social security benefits. It spells that out uh, on the FAFSA when it asks you to report. There's a kind of a whole section on untaxed income, and it specifically calls out, you know, it says report here any other untaxed income you might have received, but do not include untaxed social security benefits. So only 
Um, the only Social Security that's reported on the FAFSA is what's already included in your AGI. Um, the CS's profile is kind of a different story. Uh, basically, the answer when anybody asks me if uh, a certain thing has to be reported on the CSS profile, the answer is usually yes. Uh, the profile <laughs> asks for kind of every bit of financial info you can imagine. Uh, it's a much longer form than the FAFSA. So yes, on the profile form, you do have to report both taxed and untaxed Social Security benefits there. Uh, it does separate them out into two separate questions. Uh, and they do also ask you to report the Social Security benefits that you receive for any family members. So that the child that you mentioned that receives Social Security benefits, that has to be reported on the profile as well. Uh, again, not on the FAFSA, but on the profile, yes. Um, if those benefits are going away, though, it sounds like they are in future years, that's definitely kind of a good special circumstance to bring up to the financial aid office at the school. Uh, you know, kind of my income looks higher in this year that you're looking at because I received these Social Security benefits, but those are going away or they went away as of this date. Um, so there's like an additional information box on the CSS profile where you can explain those sorts of things. So that's the Social Security. Um, for the IRA distribution. It's actually similar to Social Security. If it's a taxable distribution, that's automatically included in your AGI. So you're not reporting the taxable part separately. It's just part of that big adjusted gross income number. Um, but different than the, the Social Security, you do have to report untaxed IRA distributions on the FAFSA. They do ask you that specifically in a separate question. Report your untaxed IRA distributions here. Um, they spell out how to figure out the untaxed portion. They'll say, like, this is line 15A minus 15B on your 1040. Those the line items are, that's kind of the old 1040. Those were the line items now with the tax reform bill that's Tax return looks different. They're different line items now. Um, but they will spell it out when the new FAFSA comes out in October for the next school year. It will tell you exactly what line items you need to look at to report those IRA distributions. And I have a question for you, Beth. This one is okay. from Lori. And she says, my son is a senior in high school this year. Um, on his transcript, he has mostly A's and a half dozen B's. Um, spring semester of junior year, he got a C-plus in honors trigonometry. Um, he found the subject matter difficult. Um, that is not shocking. <laughs> it is a difficult subject for lots of students, including me. Um, he also perhaps overcommitted himself with extracurricular activities and test prep for the ACT. Should he try to explain that C-plus in the quote, is there anything else you'd like to add section of his college of his college applications if that question is provided? Okay, so good question. Lori, I fear that we are too late to help you here, but um, uh, so I'm not sure when you sent your question in, or uh, but I do think this will be helpful for other parents in the future, and if you have younger kids, um, be helpful for you. So my answer here is, the explanation that you're providing here is basically that he, what happened to him is what happens to lots of students in classes, right? It's the subject matter is a little difficult and he probably wasn't giving it as much attention as he could have because he was overscheduled with extracurriculars and doing test prep. Um, from an explanation point of view, honestly, uh, that's not helpful and I would leave it alone. 
the only time I would try to explain a grade, I think there are two situations where I might want to explain a particular grade. The first would be um, if there was something out of the ordinary that was happening. Um, you, The student was ill. The student was hop- hospitalized. Um, there was something, you know, parents announced that they were getting divorced. Um, a family member died. Um, you know, these are more extraordinary circumstances that could impact a student um, in a way that it would be useful to understand from a, as an admissions officer. Uh, the other to me is just like, well, I didn't really... Like I said, I, I it was hard and I didn't probably work hard enough at it. And that's not really, you know, I would say that's best left unsaid. There is, um, and I can only think of one school right now, but there probably are more. But I know the University of Delaware has frequently asked, you know, if there are grades of C or below on your transcripts, please provide an explanation. In that case, they're specifically asking you what happened here. Mm-hmm. And um, the student will need to provide an explanation. I would just be thoughtful about how you um, are, you know, if in the case of Lori, it's probably too late. But if not, um, you know, how you present what happened, right? You never want to blame a poor grade on a teacher. Uh, even if the teacher maybe wasn't great, um, I, my advice is always, well, and especially as the child of educators, um, I know there's two sides to every story. And when you work in an education institution, it doesn't tend to go down very well when you blame stuff on the teacher. So, um, you know, the teacher's style of teaching and my style of learning weren't particularly well aligned. Um, and as a result, I didn't do as well. I didn't make adjustments. I wish that I had this year I went in, you know, and I did X, Y, and Z to make sure that it didn't happen again. You know, I I think it's always kind of nice to focus a little bit more on what you've done since then to prevent it from happening again, than what happened, you know, then how come it happened in the first place, right? How come it happened in the first place can sound a little bit more like making excuses, Whereas you could you could share briefly what happened, but if you share a little bit more about what you the steps you've taken to combat that since then, um, that's going to be much more helpful and insightful. Um, but still, I would say you know, and so if you really felt like you wanted to provide an explanation and you could focus on what you're doing differently to make sure it doesn't happen again, that would be the way that I would go. But I would not suddenly say, "Oh, I've got to write a bunch of these for my grades." You know, the grades are what they are. They they use they probably tell the story that you think they tell. And um, I would focus on making other parts of the application stronger. Perfect. All right, let's go here to you. This comes to us from Michelle. Um, I have a financial aid application question related to business ownership. My husband and I started a business a few years ago, and we may qualify for some financial aid due to our low salaries and the startup costs lowering our income. The company as of 2017 is a C-Corp, and we are just under 25% owners in the business. It does not qualify as a family business, although it does have less than 10 employees. What are some things I should know and some strategies I should be aware of as I complete the FAFSA and CSS? I'm an accountant, so feel confident in being able to complete the forms, but I'm not fully aware of the rules for business owners. Thank you. Okay, yeah. So what Michelle's referring to here when she talks about it doesn't qualify as a family business, um, that is a... Um, something on the 
FAFSA, where, you know, you have to report your assets, but they actually tell you to exclude the value of any small family businesses. And how they define what is a small family business is that it has to be majority, over 50% family owned. So that's why Michelle is saying her business doesn't count as a family business because uh, it's only 25% family owned. But for other business owners out there, if the family, if the business is majority family owned and has less than 100 employees, you do not have to report that business value on the FAFSA. Uh, and that was basically like kind of like a political decision that was made, um, just like why home equity is not included on the FAFSA, you know, it kind of opens up government representatives. If they, they were to ask you to report those things, people would criticize and say, you know, you're expecting families to sell their home or, you know, sell off this family business that's been in their family for years to pay for college. Um, and so it opens up, you know, the government for criticism. So that's really why they allow you to exclude those things when you're reporting your assets on the FAFSA. Um, But some colleges want to take small businesses, home equity into consideration, and those colleges require that extra form that we've talked a lot about today, the CSS profile. They want info on all of your assets, including any small family businesses. Um, So on the CSS and on the FAFSA, if like Michelle, it's not a small family business, so you have to report your business value. The value is self-reported, um, but what it, you're supposed to be reporting there is the market value of your business. So basically, like what you could sell your business for today. Um, sometimes, and I would say especially for the small businesses that you have to report on the CSS profile, y- you may think legitimately that there is no market value there. Um, You know, if your business is like a one-man operation and you're like a consultant. So let's say I left College Coach today and I wanted to open up my own college consulting business that I operate out of my home, you know, and then I want to sell that business. What could I sell it for? Well, probably not really anything because, you know, the asset, the primary asset of the business is my, you know, skills and knowledge and experience, you know, it's not something that's really saleable. So I could, in that circumstance, maybe legitimately report a zero business value in that case. Um, But if you do report, so I'm kind of going into, you know, anyone with any kind of business, if you do think you can legitimately report a zero value on the CSS, I would definitely explain in that additional information box why you're saying there's no value. Give a little color to what this business is and why you're saying it has no value. Uh, Even uh, like little one-man show businesses often do have some small value. Like does the business have, you know, computers or equipment or something you could sell off if you decided to close the business? Um, so I think very often there should be some small value um, to report uh, on the CSS profile. Um, I, I generally kind of recommend thinking about that. And if you think there's some small value there, report it rather than reporting a zero. Because when a financial aid office sees, they can often see from a tax return that you own a business, but then they see you reporting zero value. That can raise some red flags and cause them to question you. And, you know, if you can avoid it, you probably don't want the financial aid office asking any questions. Um, if they were to question you, what uh, what a financial aid office would likely do is look at the balance 
sheet of your business, which they would sometimes get off of your business tax return, or there's a form that some of the CSS profile colleges require called the business farm supplement, where you have to like fill out a balance sheet for your business. Um, so what the colleges would do is compare your assets to your liabilities on that form, and then the difference is what... Um, they would expect you to report as the net value of your business. Uh, and if you're going to report a very different value than what that calculation is going to get the aid office, then again, I think you should explain that on the application. Otherwise, what the aid office could do is just use the higher number that they calculate. They can do that when it comes to awarding their own money. So I don't know if any of this really applies to Michelle and her business, but those are kind of in general the things that I think business owners should know about the financial aid application process and kind of be aware of and be thinking about as they fill out the financial aid applications. All right. We've both had a couple of big ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we have time for one more for me. Okay. Um, so Gina asks, my friend told me last year, two students applied to Harvard with equal qualifications. One got in, but another one got rejected because she needed financial aid. Is that possible? Oh, and I can't even let you answer this. Beth, the answer is no. I'm just going to say that, but I will let you explain further. <laughs> Sure. Well, the answer on the financial aid front is absolutely not because Harvard is um, need blind when it comes to admissions, which means they do not consider whether or not a family is applying for financial aid when they consider candidates for acceptance. And they are need based in admission in financial aid, which means that if you qualify for aid, they're going to award you aid. If you don't qualify for aid, you're not getting any type of money to attend Harvard. Um, the broader thing I would I wanted to hit with this one here is that, first of all, no one has any idea what is in another student's application. And also, you don't get into Harvard because of quote unquote qualifications, right? So you don't get in because you have great grades and test scores. There is so much (laughs) more to it than that. And um, what few people know, unless you've read someone's application, you don't know what else they have to offer and how they have presented what they have to offer in their application. While you may think you know what their test scores are, you may not actually. While you think you might know what their grades are, you may not. Um, While you think you may know what they took in school, you may not. But I guarantee what you don't know is you have no idea how that was presented. Um, You may not have a full picture of what they do outside of the classroom. So I would really, whenever possible, avoid, um, first of all, things that start with, I heard that or I know someone who, because they generally have no idea. Um, And also because that is how rumors propagate and get started and then continue over time. So, um, but the short answer is no, that is not what happened there. Um, Who knows why one got in and one did not. Um, There are so many different pieces of the application that are going to impact their decision. Um, But the decision to apply for financial aid was 100% not the reason that the student didn't get into Harvard. Um, They admit less than 5% of their applicant pool. That's probably why they didn't get into Harvard because (laughs) they don't admit that Uh many students. Um, Thank you so much, Shannon, for being here today. I appreciate it. Um, You are so welcome. 
All right. And then uh, thanks also to Zaragoza. Next week, Sally is hosting um, and she's going to be talking about course selection. How many APs do you need? And maybe you don't need any. Um, They're also going to be talking about visiting colleges over spring break, financial questions to ask during admitted students day for those seniors who are going to be attending those. Um, And if you have questions, one last time, I'll say gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.